Matthew chapter number 5. We've been studying the Sermon on the Mount, specifically the Beatitudes, uh, over the last several weeks, and this morning we come to the uh, the final, what we call, we refer to as the Beatitudes. Um, starting next week, we will be looking at what are referred to as the Similitudes. They're a little, little different um, than what the Beatitudes are. Uh, and um, it's interesting because the Sermon on the Mount uh, is not a message that Christ is preaching to those that are lost, but He is preaching to those that are saved. He's teaching the things that He wants them to know about being disciples, followers of Him. Very important that we make that distinction and we understand what He's teaching here and why He's teaching in the context of it. And it's interesting, as we got to the beginning of this chapter and we were starting the introduction of this series, that we saw two different types of people. We saw the multitudes who had gathered to see Christ, who was an unusual figure in that day, uh, his, uh, the things that he had been doing, some of the miracles he had been performing, some of the things he had been speaking about and teaching already, uh, had amazed people, things they had never heard. Uh, somebody teach that way before, or teach with uh, ones having authority. And uh, the, the multitudes gathered to see that. But then you had uh, some, some folks that were willing to sacrificially give up things in their life in order to follow him wholeheartedly. And these were known as the disciples. They left their nets, they left their boats, they left their families, and they followed Him. And in the first part of chapter 5, the Bible says that Christ went up into a mountain. And once He was there and was set, His disciples came to Him. And I think that's an interesting thing, that there is some effort involved in following the Lord Jesus Christ. They had to go up the mountain to see Him. And the Lord begins to teach His disciples. So understand that the things He's teaching them are not... Uh, messages of salvation, but messages of discipleship, teaching them the cost of discipleship. The very first three of the, what we refer to as the Beatitudes deal primarily with the heart and what these disciples were inwardly. And he says, blessed are uh, the poor in spirit. And the idea being that there needed to be an understanding uh, of their own uh, dependence on the Lord Jesus Christ. If you and I are going to be disciples of the Lord... We need to realize that we have not arrived. Uh, we we don't. I was talking to a, a fellow preacher this week, and uh, there there's a friend of ours, a mutual friend of ours, that uh, has been pastoring uh, for a number of years, and we've noticed a change in him recently, and, and it's been heartbreaking to see because he's shifted from a spirit of humility and trying to be just a servant and share the, the word of the Lord to somebody uh, to somebody who thinks they have all the answers. And it's, it's, there's, a, there's a, a tendency in every one of us towards pride, isn't there? There's a tendency for us to become self-sufficient. Uh, I don't care how long we've been saved. I was talking to a preacher a while back who had been told uh, he was wanting to go into ministry, had been uh, laboring under another pastor, and felt like it was time to go out into the ministry. And he shared that with the pastor that had been kind of mentoring him and helping him a little bit. And the pastor told him, he said, I don't think you're ready yet. And I said, well, that's a dangerous place to be if a, if a person ever feels like they've, that they're ready. Uh, they're probably not. Because the truth is, the Word of God is, is an infinite book. And how in the world do we have the arrogance to think that we in our human flesh can stand up here and do justice in preaching it or teaching it 
And so when we come to these things, there has to be an absolute dependence upon the Lord Jesus Christ to do the work for His Holy Spirit to guide and to direct in the teaching and the hearing of His Word. Uh, men are fallible. Preachers are fallible. I'm fallible. And when we preach and we teach, we do our best to, to be right and to rightly divide the Word of God. But only God can bring the truth to light in a man's heart. It's very important that we understand our dependence. And He teaches His disciples uh, to be poor in spirit. Don't, don't be this arrogant person. Uh, there needs to be a sense of humility. There needs to be a sense of emptying of self and saying, Lord, I need You to come and fill me to do the work. And very important that we understand that. Then he says, blessed are they that mourn. And the idea being that we are to mourn over the things that the Lord Jesus Christ mourned over. And the things that the Lord mourned over was the unbelief of folks, their sin, their sinful condition. There needs to be a burden for the lost if you're going to be a disciple. And there needs to be a mortification in our own hearts over our own sin. There needs to be a broken and a contrite spirit regarding our own sin. And we will not have that if we don't first have the poor in spirit, if we don't have that sense of humility, if we don't have that sense of emptiness of self. We will, we will never get to the point of mourning over our sin. So it's very important that these things progress and that they build one on top of the other. Then he says in the third one, blessed are the meek. And the idea of being meek is not an idea of being weak. And don't, don't misconstrue the difference. But it is the idea that even though we've been given the liberty of a free will, that we take it and willingly, not by obligation, but willingly give our will back to God and say, I don't want my will. I want your will. And that is a spirit of meekness. To get to the place where even though we have the right to make our own choices, we say, Lord, I want your will done in my life, not mine. So these three deal with the heart of the issue, getting the, the disciples to a place in their lives where they are something on the inside first. Then as we get to the fourth one, which is found in verse number 6, he says, Blessed are they which do, and we find that little word do. So now for the first time, he's dealing with the things that they are to do outwardly. He says, Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness. We talked about the fact that if we don't have a hunger and a thirst for the things of the Lord, that more than likely it is because we are feasting on things of a non-spiritual nature. We're feasting on the things of this world, the appetites of the flesh. And when we're full of those, we cannot be hungry and thirsty. It's just like a person uh, who uh, snacks all afternoon and mom goes to fix supper, and they say, oh, I'm not hungry. Why? Because they were eating things that weren't wholesome for them, things that weren't right to be eating yet. And if there's not a hunger and a thirst in the heart of a Christian to, to seek after righteousness and the things of the Lord, chances are it's because we've been filling our lives with other things of our appetites. And verse number 7, he says, Blessed are the merciful. And we talked about the fact that we're to show mercy as we have received mercy. We dealt with the mercy that God has shown us in salvation. The fact that we deserve death and hell for eternity. That's how bad our sin is. Not hell for just a few months or a few weeks to pay for our sin. But for eternity, that's what we deserve. And yet God in His love for us extended His mercy. He talks about the disciples. Listen, fellas, you need to be merciful. 
You need to be able to show mercy to others as you have seen mercy extended to you. And verse number 8, he says, Blessed are the pure in heart. And we spoke about the idea of the fact that our heart is desperately wicked above all things. Who can know it? How do we get a pure heart? We get a pure heart by feasting and saturating our lives with the Word of God. This book has a cleansing effect. And if we're to have a clean heart, then we have to think on things that are pure and just and right. Things that are of a good report and things that are virtuous. How do we do that? We saturate our minds by the Word of God. Psalm 119, verse 9, Wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way by taking heed thereto, according to thy word. With my whole heart have I sought thee, O let me not wander from thy commandments. Thy word, is, uh, thy word have I hid in my heart, that I might not sin against thee. How do we have a pure heart? We feast upon God's Word. We saturate our minds with it. We read it. We study it. We, we memorize it. We listen to preaching. We, we sing songs about it. All day long throughout the day, we feast upon God's Word. It gives the purity to our hearts and our minds. In verse number 9, last week we dealt with blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. And we found that there's only one source of peace. And that is by having the, uh, the uh, regenerative, the redemptive power of the Lord Jesus Christ applied to us. By trusting Christ, there was no peace before we got saved. The moment we get saved, the moment we trust in Him, that great burden is rolled off. I don't know how many times I've heard somebody trust Christ as their Savior, say, boy, it just felt like my whole shoulders were lightened. Everything was just great. The, 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 client, the skies were clearer and the birds sang sweeter. There just was a lightness to my heart. Why? Because for the first time, they, they experienced peace. And we found out that that peace was a peace that passeth all understanding. It's a peace that we can't even fully fathom. A resting in the Lord Jesus Christ. And if we're to be peacemakers, then we're to take that peace that the Lord Jesus Christ has given to us and we're to share it with every man we can come in contact with. We're to take them to the place where they can find peace for themselves. Very important that we are busy as disciples bringing people to the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ. To draw them and to lead them to a place of decision. Now, we cannot make somebody get saved. I've had sometimes a lost person that I've been dealing with say, uh, Brother Greg, can you, can you come save me? And I know what they mean by that. They, they want me to come and help them understand and to, and to uh, get to a place where they can make that decision themselves. But can I tell you this? You and I can't save anybody. But we can sure lead people to Christ, can't we? We can take them by the hand and show them the love that the Lord has shown us. We can show them the mercy that God has shown us. We can show them the joy that God has given us. And we can draw them by Scripture to the place where they have understanding of their sin and their guilt and their inability to pay the debt for that sin. And that Christ paid it for them. And that all they need to do is put their faith and their trust in what Christ did on Calvary for them. His death, burial, and resurrection from the dead. They have to just trust that to get them to heaven. He'll give them forgiveness of sin. He'll give them that peace that passeth all understanding. That brings us to the last and final one we'll be studying in verse number 10, and that's the one we're looking at today. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. 
Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. There are three things that I think are very important for us to see in this particular beatitude. And two of them, I want you to understand, are not really the point of the beatitude. They are facts that are just automatically assumed to be so. Now, let's take a look at them very quickly. The first one I want you to understand as we get to verse number 10. He says, Blessed are they which are persecuted. I want you to notice these next two words, uh, for righteousness. It's interesting because as we think of things that are just, that are fair, that are right, we would think that persecution belongs to people that are doing evil, that they need to pay for their wrongdoing, right? I mean, that's what normally we would think of as a just person. But the Lord Jesus Christ makes an an assumption of something that we should already know. And that is this, that when we live righteously, there will be persecution. Persecution is going to come because of this. Now, when we live righteously, when uh, it talks about uh, in verse number 10, blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, uh, there is something that when we get saved... There are, there are several things that change. Uh, and I want to give you those very quickly. The, the day that we get saved, the destination that we were headed to changes. I once was headed to a place called hell to pay for my sin. You don't have to do anything to go there. You don't have to choose, oh, I want to go to hell. When we're born and we get the sense of what is right and what is wrong, we become sinners. We are guilty of that. We are born that way with a sin nature. And as soon as we get to the place of understanding right and wrong, we, we have the accountability of, of our sin. And once we have accountability of our sin, we have no way to pay it. There's not a big scale in heaven. You won't find that anywhere in Scripture where God puts all of our good on one side and all of our evil on the other side, and that if our good outweighs the bad, we get to go to heaven. That is not found anywhere in Scripture. But even if it was, you know what God's view of our good is? It says all of our righteousnesses are as what? Filthy rags. Even if there was a scale in heaven, which there's not, our good still would not be enough. If we did all that we could... If we gave all of our goods to the poor, if we gave our bodies to be burned, if we did all of these great and noble acts, it would not be enough to pay for our sin. We're lost and there's no way we can be found by ourselves. We owe a price and we owe a debt. There's no way to pay it. We're living in a society that's trying to justify forgiving college debt. I don't care where you stand on that politically. But a lot of people enter into a debt, and the truth is they get to a point where they can't pay it back. There's consequences for that, by the way. You have to pay the consequences for not being able to pay it. And that's the position we find ourselves in when we realize we're sinners. So I was headed to hell. The moment I understood the difference between right and wrong, the moment I could discern between what was right and wrong, I became guilty of my sin and responsible for it. But when I got saved, my destination changed. I'm no longer going to hell. I'm going to heaven. I'm going to live with Him for eternity. There's another thing that changed when I got saved, and that was my inclination. 
my heart, the things I desired. Set your affection, Colossians chapter 3, set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. Take your Bibles, if you will, turn with me to John chapter number 14, and hold your place there for a moment. Uh, I'm sorry, Philippians chapter 3, I'm sorry. Philippians chapter number 3, and uh, verse number uh, 4. Philippians chapter number 3, and verse number 4. This is the testimony of a fellow by the name of Paul. Uh, he used to be called Saul uh, earlier when he got saved. His name was referred to from then on as Paul. And he gives us his testimony in uh, Philippians chapter number 3. Let's look in verse number 4. Philippians chapter 3, verse number 4. Now, this is Paul's own testimony. He says, Though I might uh, also have confidence in the flesh, if any other man thinketh that he hath whereof he might trust in the flesh, I more. In other words, he's saying, if any man in the world has the ability to trust in flesh, he said, I would think I'd be the one. Notice, because he gives all of these accolades. He says, look at how good of a person I was. Circumcised the eighth day in the sock of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin, and Hebrew of the Hebrews, as touching the law of Pharisee. Pharisees were known for their wickedness inwardly, but outwardly they were very, very holy people. They were clean, they were whited, they, they lived holy lives. It was their inner condition that God condemned them for. I mean, here's a man that outwardly you'd look at him and you'd say, boy, I wish I could be like him. He's a moral person. He, he's doing what's right. He's following the law. He was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. Notice it says here in, in verse number 6, concerning zeal, there was nobody more zealous than Paul. Paul said this, this, this imposter that called himself the Christ, this Jesus, he was an imposter. He called himself the Messiah. And he thought that he was doing God a favor by, by bringing into uh, arrest and sometimes even being consenting to the death of those that had put their faith in Jesus Christ. And so he went about arresting and torturing and martyring people that were putting their faith in Christ and thought he was doing God a service. You know there's a lot of people today that think they're okay with the Lord and their relationship is alright with them, and they're just mistaken. They just are. I don't know how many times I ask somebody, do you know for sure you're going to heaven? And, and they'll say, oh yeah, I, I hope I do. And I'll say, what are, you, what are you counting on to get you to heaven? Well, I try to live the best I can. I don't know how many times I've heard that. But they're wrong. It's not what the Bible says. In order to get to heaven, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. There's one way to get to heaven. Not many. There are not many roads, though some preachers around the country on television would tell you there are, all, there are a lot of roads and they all lead to heaven. No, they don't. There's one. And that is by faith in what Jesus Christ did for us on Calvary. And that alone. It's the only way. He goes on to say, in a zeal persecuting the church. I thought I was doing God a favor. Touching righteousness, which is in the law. I was blameless. Paul said if there was a man alive that could claim his righteousness, it would be me. These are the things Paul loved and longed for and sought after. But what things, notice with verse number 7, but what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. Yea, doubtless, 
And I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung. Paul said, you know, all those things that I used to hold to and think, boy, this is great. I don't have a desire for those things anymore. In fact, they don't hold any weight on me at all. I don't even, I count them but dung. They're, they're of the same value to me as a dung heap. That I may win Christ. When we got saved, the things that we love, our heart, our inclinations, the things that we had a desire for, changed. Our destination changed. The desire of our heart changed. And then I want you to look in Ephesians chapter number 2. And let's look at one other thing that is supposed to change when we get saved. Ephesians chapter number 2. Look in with me in verse number 1. And you hath he quickened who were, that's past tense by the way, you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. So this is somebody who used to be unsaved. They, they did not have their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But now they are saved. And the Bible says when that took place, he uses an old English word here, quickened, which means to be made alive. He, brought, he rebirthed something in us. There's something new that was made alive that used to be dead in us. The Bible tells us that if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things become new. And the minute we get saved, our destination changes, the desires of our heart change. And I would also say this, that the things that we do in our lives, the Bible refers to it as our conversation. Not the things that come out of our mouth, but the manner of life, the way we live, changes. Notice he says, And you hath he quickened who are dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in time past ye walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. Who's that? We used to walk according to Satan's will. We did the things that his bidding was. Whatever he wanted us to do, he enticed us and tempted us, and we did it, and we did it willfully, not understanding or realizing that it was him that was leading us. But when we got saved, something changed in us. Something was made alive in us. The Holy Spirit of God came to live inside of us. And now there's something in there that pricks our heart. We used to live that way. The Bible says that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we had our conversation. And that again is not dealing with our speech. It's dealing with our manner of life, how we live. Among whom also we had our conversation in times past, in the lusts of our flesh. That's how we used to live. Whatever we felt was right, that's what we did. It was my will. I want what I want. And we found a way to justify it. We found a way to say, I want what I want, and because it seems right to me, it must be right. That's the way we used to walk. <clears throat> in times past, in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. That's the way we used to walk. That's the way we used to live our lives. But, verse number 4, I love that word. But God, who is rich in mercy, for the great love wherewith He loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ, by grace are ye saved. 
The idea is, we used to walk this way. But when God came on the scene, and I put my faith in Him, I don't walk that way anymore. I now walk according to the Holy Spirit. That thing that came and lived inside of me, the Holy Spirit of God, that thing was made alive inside of me, it now impresses upon my heart and gives me a conscience and leads me in a way that is honoring to the Lord Jesus Christ. And I have a desire to do so. I don't live that way because I have to, nor should you. We ought to live that way because that's what God is drawing our hearts to. It ought to be a desire. It ought to be the natural thing for us to want to do the things of the Lord. And when we fail, it ought to bother us. It ought to cause sorrow upon sorrows. It ought to cause what the psalmist referred to as a broken and a contrite spirit. That's what happened to him. When he committed adultery with Bathsheba, David, he said, I'm broken. My sin is ever before me. He said, Lord, you want a broken and a contrite heart. Here it is. Why? Because there's something inside of him that longs to do the things of the Lord. That longs to want to obey the Scriptures. And when we don't, it ought to, it ought to cause some hardship on our hearts. It ought to cause some conviction upon our hearts. So he tells his disciples, blessed are the righteous. But the point of the, of the beatitude is not telling them that they should live righteously. It is, and I want you to notice the way it's written here. Look with me in verse 10 of Matthew chapter 5. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake. There is no command here for them to live righteously. It is just assumed that now that you are saved, your desire is going to be to live righteously. So then he teaches them something about this living righteously that should be a natural course of salvation. Amen to that. Righteousness is not something we should have to labor for. We do because the old flesh struggles with us. But it ought to be the intent of our heart once we get saved. It ought to be the thing that we long to do, not things that we feel like because preacher said it and because I read in Scripture, I better do that. No, no. There ought to be a love for righteousness. We read a few weeks ago that in a Christian's life, in a disciple's life, one that's willing to follow Christ and give a price and a cost to do so, they ought to have a hunger and a thirst for righteousness. Righteousness shouldn't be something that we have to be taught in church. It is because of our old nature. We have to teach it. But as a Christian, our hearts ought to automatically long for that. Christ doesn't tell His disciples in this beatitude, you need to live righteously. He assumes they are going to want to. But He gives them a warning. He says, if you're going to do it, there's going to be some persecution along the way. The world's reaction to our new life in Christ is not a pleasant one. In fact, a lot of times when we get saved, there are some friends of ours that we used to have that we were very close to that we began to drift away from and we began to even lose some of them. There are people we used to work with that we used to get along with fine that they began to see how we live our life and they may begin to mock us. For our new life. 
Why? Because the righteousness that's there, the desire to live holy, it's not that we're any better than anybody else. We're still sinners. But we've been saved by the grace of God. And while I'm not any better than anyone else, he who lives within me is far greater than he that lives in them. There's not an arrogance or a pride to that. There's a gratefulness and a humble thankfulness for that. But for the grace of God, we would still be headed to hell today. And he says there's going to be some persecution that's going to come. Notice what he says here in verse number 11. There's three things that the world is going to do when we get saved. And we begin to live righteously. He says, Blessed are you when men shall, number one, when men shall revile you. The word revile is, a, is an old English word. We don't use it a whole lot anymore. You hear it every once in a while, but not very often in modern language. It's an old English word, and it's, it deals with what people say about you. They're, they're contemptuous. They're, 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 they're trying to be hurtful in their speech. The word revile means that they are trying to discourage you by the things they say. And, it, and, it, and they're going to hurt your feelings or try to in every way in the area of things of the Lord. They're going, to, they're, going to, they're going to question your motives. They're going to look at you and say, well, you think you're better than everybody else. And they're going to try to make you be shameful that you have some kind of a level of pride in your life that you need to get over yourself. They're going to do it. They're, they're going to revile us. Notice he says also in verse number 11, and persecute you. The idea of persecution is to pursue after injuring us. Their desire is to afflict, uh, afflict us and to, and to get us to the place where they destroy our desire to follow after righteousness. That's their goal in persecution. They want us to recant this new life that God has given to us. Now, think about this. We get saved. God changes our life. And for the first time, we have peace that passes all understanding. And we have a joy that springs up within us like a well that we can't explain. And they're going to do everything they can by persecuting us to get us to say, I, I better not do that anymore. Why would we give this up? Regardless of the persecution. But they're going to do it. And he warns his disciples, listen, when you live righteously... There's going to be some persecution, and they're going to revile you. They're going to persecute you. Now, I want you to notice also, he says in verse 11, they're going to say all manner of evil against you. But it doesn't end there. There's another word that follows it. What is it? They're going to lie about you. And they're going to do it viciously and vindictively, and they're going to do it to hurt your feelings. Now, now follow me. And, and all of this is leading up to, the, to the, the principle that he's teaching his disciples here. He is not teaching them to live righteously. He is not even teaching them to, that, that, that they need to be persecutors or, or that persecution is going to come. That's assumed. He says, Blessed are you when men shall persecute you for righteousness. What the purpose of the beatitude is, is this. And he wants to teach his disciples this point. It's not about them living righteously. It's not about the world persecuting them for their righteousness. It is all about how they respond to that situation. Look what it says. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Here's the lesson he's teaching them. Rejoice. <laughs> wow. Lord, you're serious about that? 
men are going to revile me. Men are going to persecute me. I mean, my daddy taught me I don't be a doormat for anybody. And boy, it's, it's, that, those are fisticuffs. I'm ready to punch their lights out for that. That's what I was taught. That's not what Christ is teaching His disciples here, though, is it? He said, rejoice. What? Any, anybody here love it when somebody speaks of all manner of evil against us falsely? Anybody love that? Anybody just say, boy, praise the Lord, somebody reviled me today. But that's what he's teaching his disciples, isn't he? He says, rejoice and be exceeding glad. He teaches them three things about their response. I want to give them to you real quick and we'll be done. The first thing that he teaches them is that they are to rejoice when the persecution comes. The second thing he says is be exceeding glad. (laughs) You ever had anybody excessively glad around you? They get on your nerves about how glad they are. They're just so bright and positive, you're like, ooh, they just ooze gladness and joy. That just, oh, that just irritates me. Next time somebody reviles you, next time somebody persecutes you, next time somebody says all manner of evil things against you falsely, I wonder how they would respond to you when you rejoice in that. Say, oh, praise the Lord. Oh, what a joy it is to endure these things for Christ's sake. We're to rejoice, we're to be exceeding glad. And I want you to notice this. He says, uh, for so the persecuted they, the prophets which were before you, recognize that you're in good company. You're not the only ones that have ever had to go through it. By the way, Christ Himself even went through it, did He not? The very fact that He was crucified was because men were bearing false witness against Him, speaking evil against Him falsely. Notice in verse 12, He says, Rejoice and be exceeding glad. Now here's the reason why. He says, I want you to respond this way. I want you to rejoice. I want you to be exceeding glad. And here's the reason. For great is your reward. And if that's all he said, there'd be a lot of us saying, boy, it's just not worth it. Because any kind of earthly reward may or may not be enough to overcome the persecution and the reviling and the false statements that people make against us to hurt us. But he says, great is your reward in heaven. Paul said, I reckon that the things of this life, the affairs of this life, are not even worthy to be compared to the joy that is set before us. Let's turn back to Philippians, if you will, and we'll end here, chapter 2. I'm sorry, chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. Paul gave his testimony. Verse number... Eight, he says, Yea, doubtless I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and do count them but dung, that I may win what? Christ. 
Having Christ as my reward is a greater joy than any persecution or any reviling or any false witness against me that somebody says to hurt my feelings. By the way, if you got thin skin, you're not going to be a good disciple. You've got to be able to rejoice and say, you know what? If they're doing it for Christ's sake, for, for my, right, the, the, my attempt to live righteously and godly, my attempt to be pleasing to Him, if that's what their purpose is, then I'm going to rejoice in it. I, I'm going to be happy about those things. Why? Because I'd much rather win Christ. Oh, the joy that Christ brings into my life. There's not a persecution on this earth. By the way, that's why millions over the years have been burned at the stake. They've been hung. They've been boiled in oil. They've been martyred, vicious and cruel deaths for the cause of Christ. Why? Because Christ was far more precious to them than the persecution hurt them. That I may know Him, look verse number 10, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection, the fellowship of His sufferings being made conformable unto His death, if by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead, not as though I had already attained, either were already perfect, but I follow after if that I may apprehend that for which I am apprehended of Christ Jesus. In other words, that joy, that, that desire to live right, I, 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 want to, I want to pursue that. He's put that in my heart. I want to follow it wholeheartedly. Brethren, I count my, myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before, I press toward the mark for the what? The prize. Why would we live this way? Why would we rejoice in persecution? Because great is your reward in heaven. There's a prize that is set out there before us that is far greater than anything this world can do to us. He's teaching His disciples things that these men had never heard before. He's teaching them, saying, Fellas, if you're willing to sacrifice, and they had already shown that they were. Some of them had left their boats. Some of them had left their nets already. Two of them had left their father to follow Christ. And he's saying, fellas, if you're willing to do that, I can do something with you and I'll teach you some things. But you've got to be something on the inside. And once you are that on the inside, I can teach you things you can do. Now, fellas, there are going to be things you've never heard before. There are going to be things that are going to cost you but they will be things that will make you my disciples. Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes in particular, are life-changing. If we can ever grasp the truth of them and apply them to our hearts and our lives, oh, what a difference. Our service for God will no longer be drudgery and frustration but it will be accomplished with great joy. Let's stand together, shall we, with heads bowed. Father, we thank You for Your Word.
for the leading and the teaching of Your Holy Spirit. And Lord, these are things that really go contrary to human reasoning. The desires our flesh has, they go contrary to those things. But they are what You have given us 